This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Arlie Russell Hochschild, who is one of the most influential sociologists of her generation. She is the author of nine books, including The Second Shift, The Time Bomb, The Managed Heart, and The Outsourced Self. Three of her books have been named as New York Times Notable Books of the Year, and her work appears in 16 languages. The winner of the Ulysses Medal, as well as Guggenheim and Mellon Grants, she lives in Berkeley, California. She has been a professor in Berkeley's sociology department since 1971 and is now a professor in the graduate school at uh, Berkeley. She was recognized by the American Sociological Association as one of the most imaginative and productive feminist sociologists uh, in the United States. As a scholar, she has been at the forefront of research on contemporary work and family life for over 30 years. Arlie's new book is Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, A Journey to the Heart of Our Political Divide. Arlie, welcome to our program. Well, thank you very much. Where were you born and raised? Well, let's see. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and raised in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. until I was 12. And then my dad was in the Foreign Service, so I lived in a bunch of countries. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? And and in your case, uh, more important in a way, how to deal with people? (laughs) Well, they, uh, following my dad's uh, career led me to uh, a lot of different situations where I didn't speak the language, I didn't look like other people, I was wearing the wrong clothes, I could be the, I was kind of the outsider, the, uh, the oddball. And yet I had social support in that role. And I think it's why I'm a sociologist, honestly. And, I had to figure it out. <laughs> I have the sense that as a young person, you were uh, at some of the teas and uh, receptions and could could watch these different people. That's right. I was the little kid passing the peanuts and kind of watching how people were interacting and people from different worlds, how they were how they were relating to each other, the different signal system. Yeah, I watched from from below, you could say. But listening, all the time listening. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, where were you educated? Uh, I uh, went to Swarthmore College in uh, Pennsylvania and then came out to Berkeley for my graduate work in sociology. And uh, uh, any particular scholars influence you greatly and in your choice of sociology as a field? Well, yes. Actually, uh, as an undergraduate, I had read David Reisman's The Lonely Crowd and thought, wow, I, I, you get to really do the same thing, look from underneath and look at the logics that might be hidden 
um, in the kind of self that we take selves we take for granted. So, uh, but coming to Berkeley, uh, this was the best department in in the world, and uh, we had uh, Neil Smelser, who was my advisor, and uh, an extraordinary support to me in in um, my work. And uh, Irving Goffman, and there was Reinhard Bendix. Uh, um, so the great, so the greatest of the great. Yeah. So I, I felt, wow, this is this is exactly where I want to be. And what did you do your dissertation on? Well, uh, my dissertation was on uh, the elderly. That was before <laughs> I when it, that seemed like a foreign land, you know. And um, it was uh, became a book called The Unexpected Community. And I went in thinking, whoa, we've had segregation by race, but this is segregation by age. And uh, this is a problem. But the more I, and I got a job as a recreation director's assistant in, an, in a low-income housing project uh, in San Pablo here. So again, I was sort of starting micro, having good look close up, but asking a larger question of does this work or not? And what I discovered is that the people I talked to who were generally Okies and Arkies who had come out in, in uh, uh, to work in the shipyards during World War II. Extraordinary people that would, uh, many were, were women who would bake muffins for three dozen, you know, and then hand them out to others. They liked this arrangement. They had close bonds with their family, but they liked the community and they didn't think they were old, why they had a three-piece band that played for uh, the old folks in nursing homes, you know. So washboard bass and very lively. So, um, and at that time, there was a, a well-known theory of disengagement coming in Henry. So my thesis said, wait a minute, this, this, this theory of disengagement. That from is, your subjects. From my subjects. Yeah, right. right, that... Well, the theory said that as you get older, you disengage socially. Right. But every day I was going to do participant observation with a group who were anything but disengaged. In mm -hmm. fact, living together, they were more engaged than they had been uh, 10 years earlier. So I was looking at the sociology of engagement and saying that theory really needs to be modified. In the last few weeks or months of life, you may disengage, but all the time before that, you, um, I was seeing a story of, of tremendous engagement and looking at the circumstances that created it, fostered it. I like to ask my guests w what advice they would give to students who uh, would like to prepare for a career similar to that of my guest. Now, uh, what, what do you see as the skills and temperament involved in the work of, of a sociologist such as yourself? Oh, wow. I think, first of all, it's good to have earlier been a little bit estranged from your circumstances. Strange thing to say, but to have been the oddball, to have been the outsider, and I think sociology is discipline 
um, isn't something people fall into. I think they're attracted to it because they've been exposed to that experience and it makes them curious about membership in, in a group. Uh, so if you've got that, good, it's a good sign, not a bad sign. Uh, and then I think um, your capacity to, well, as for any discipline, to be really curious, to relax about yourself and be really curious about the issue or problem you've uh, taken to study. To be able to take your own alarm system off and listen to people that you know disagree with you. That's a very important skill. And the other thing I'd say is, look, you will be told how to do things in graduate school. And some of those things you're going to have to unlearn. Hmm. Don't take it quite as, as written in stone. What about uh, temperament? There, the temperament of somebody who wants to go into sociology. You've already partly answered that question. But in other words, I guess it, in, in the end, it takes courage to be at this boundary, to be an oddball yourself in a way and be looking at things and trying to find the complexity. I'm not sure. I have friends and colleagues in sociology that have every kind of temperament. Mm -hmm. And some do historical work, extraordinary, brilliant, insightful historical work and comparative work. Uh, some of my friends are studying the general social survey and doesn't call on those skills. But those of us who learn close up by studying encounters, um, then I think we do need this kind of temperament. Uh, you are considered to be a pioneer in feminist studies and sociology and also in the sociology of emotions. So, so you're a path-breaking scholar. My next question is about creativity. What, what are the factors that make a sociologist like, such as yourself uh, creative and, and carve out new paths? Wow. Um, thank you for the compliment. Um, I think to experiment, this will be paradoxical, uh, we have to feel safe. So uh, it, it, it is a paradox. You think of the explorer as someone who does without a sense of safety, who stalks ahead uh, stoically without it. It's not been my experience. Um, and what I tell my students is, get your cocoon, you know, get your family, get your best friends, make, uh, you know, a book group, a study group, uh, get your support system. Then, you, with that support, it won't be so frightening to reach out. You'll have someone to report back to. Um, and then I actually think that the world draws us into it if you let it. Like people have asked me uh, with regard to the research I did for strangers in their own land, oh my goodness, how did you, they, they must have uh, felt like you came from Mars and, and been unfriendly to you and how did you get going with them? 
Well, not at all. I didn't, that wasn't my experience. Um, I would say, hi, I'm Arlie Hochschild, the one with the unpronounceable last name, and I, I probably look like Mary Poppins to you. I come from Berkeley, <laughs> California. You know, I teach in the sociology yeah. department. Um, and I live in a bubble, a very different one, but I've been really concerned about the, how divided our country's become. And then I would see a nodded head, yeah, we're worried about that too. And so I'm, I'm here really to understand uh, people that live in your bubble and see if there aren't some co common threads here and common ground if, that we're not looking at. So I began like that, and they would say, yes, well, people where you come from think we're backward and hicks and southern and uneducated. So you set them straight. Yes, come on. You know. So, so, so you, you call in your book the empathy wall, climbing that wall to see what's on the other side. But it sounds to me like uh, there's a lot of diplomacy involved. Uh, uh, diplomatic skills. I won't say diplomacy because I think you're being honest. Maybe diplomats aren't always honest, but, but there, there are skills involved in... Skills. In, yeah. Yes, I think there are. And the main skill, I think, involved in really uh, getting to know and listening closely and feeling comfortable listening closely to people who are saying things that you have strong feelings about and commitments behind those feelings. Uh, the, the main thing is to be able to take your alarm system off for a period of time and be honest about it. I'll give you an example. There was uh, one woman I met in doing research for strangers at the Republican Women for Southwest Louisiana. She was a, um, the wife of a Pentecostal minister in a big megachurch, and she was a wonderful gospel singer. And she said, oh, I love uh, Rush Limbaugh, the very conservative radio uh, host. And I thought to myself privately, oh, oh, dear, dear, <laughs> whoa. And then I thought, no, I want to understand her love. So I said, could I speak with you, you know? So we did. Next day we met for sweet teas, and she's telling me, oh, I, I love Rush, Rush Limbaugh because he, he really gives it to those feminazis. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I hope she hasn't read the second shift. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and those environmental wackos. Oh. And so I'm listening to her, and she then says to me, has it been hard to listen to? Because I know, you've told me, that you don't agree with what I'm saying. And I told her, you know, actually not at all, because I'm not here to tell you about me. I'm here to learn, and you are doing me a bigger favor than you know. I am so grateful that you're letting me into your way of thinking and sharing your life with me. And uh, then she said, yes, I do that too. With my parishioners, with my kids, I don't always have to start with me. So then we had that in common. Mm -hmm. So is that, so then I, okay, let's start there. We, we both do that. Um, and then 
I really began to learn something because then she said, Rush Limbaugh feels like my brave heart, she called it, because he protects me from the liberal epithets of you racist, homophobic, sexist, fat, <laughs> redneck. So that she felt the liberals were lobbing at her. I didn't know that people felt that way, that that was what they got from listening to him. Um, so I learned a lot only after sharing this thing with her. So it went like that. So you you are considered a, a pioneer in what is called the sociology of emotions. And uh, I, I read a little about that. And you, you're, in a way, looking for the rules that uh, uh, help people define the emotions that are permitted in different settings and in different contexts. So, so th- this was a, a powerful background in helping you on this journey that you've already descri- begun describing. And there's one other ingredient. If I look back at myself, what am I putting together here? I think I'm putting together my early experiences in a, being the oddball in these different countries and I suppose watching my father, the diplomat. But I, I had a brother who was a psychoanalyst. Mm. Uh, and he gave me the feeling, an older brother, of you know, all of the covert patterns and intrapsychic unconscious processes that go on. I was fascinated by that. And yet it felt too locked into an intrapsychic system. It didn't have the sociology of it that I'd been exposed to as a kid. Look at all these different groups. So this set of rules applies differently to these different groups. And I think I went to sociology to get some tools for how to put these two things together. Interesting. interesting. So, so this book... Uh, the uh, strangers in their own land uh, is a departure for you uh, in the sense not of your methodology and the things that we're talking about in terms of the sociology of emotions, but rather in terms of the subject matter. And I think the dates are very important. So the book is published in 2016, uh, and you started the work on this book by going to Louisiana uh, five years before. That's right. Okay. So, so why did you choose this subject, and why did you choose Louisiana? <laughs> well, I chose this subject because um, I was worried that there was rumbling on the right that there was a growth of it. And and that it stood, and I felt that it would grow. I I, I had that intuition about it. I'm not the only one, but uh, something was going on, and I didn't understand it. So, but why Louisiana? Well, I figured, let me, 
I'm in a bubble here in Berkeley, California. Let me find an equal and opposite bubble that's as far right as sociology, Berkeley, California is left. And where would that be? That would be in the South. And I looked at uh, uh, the number of um, of whites who voted for uh, Barack Obama in 2012. And in the whole region of the South, it was a third. But in Louisiana and Mississippi, Louisiana was just 14%. So that's the super South. That's where I want to go. And uh, it, it was, uh, surveys showed, uh, a virtually half of the population said it agreed with the tenets of the Tea Party. It was five years ago, 2011. And so I thought, okay, this is perfect. So who do I want? I want uh, whites, I want religious uh, people. And where in Louisiana? Well, uh, I was interested in the petrochemical uh, industry. And pollution. And pollution. Because pollution was, um, became the keyhole issue for me. Because I started with this open mind, you know, alarm system off, but with a question, the red state paradox. How could it be that in the whole country, it's the poorest states, the states with the worst schools, the worst medical care, the most disrupted family, um, the highest uh, number of road accidents, uh, the, the worst pollution, and the lowest life expectancy are also the states that get more money from the federal government in aid than they give to it in tax dollars and are revile the federal government. I thought, well, wait a minute. If you have a problem, don't you want some help with it? So that was the red state paradox, and I discovered that Louisiana was an exaggerated version of that as the second poorest state. 44% of the state budget came from the federal government, overwhelmingly uh, conservative, and in the end, very pro-Trump. So that was an exaggerated version of this red state paradox. And then I, I began to smell the air and look at everybody who had water bottles and 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 sometimes when I drove over the I-10 bridge in Lake Charles to Westlake, this is vast, kind of almost industrial city, um, my eyes would begin to sting. But people lived here, gee. So then I looked and found it was in one of the most polluted spots on the earth. And the people did not believe in regulating polluters. So I thought, that's that's... That's really, let me focus here. So it, it, you, what I'm hearing you say suggests that uh, as a matter of choice, you picked the perfect Petri dish to find groups of people who clearly were being driven by something other than the reality, the facts, the uh, uh and seem to be drawing on their emotions, basically. Seem to be feeling something that was inconsistent with what 
uh, a Berkeley scholar or Berkeley denizens would conclude based on the facts and perception of the facts? I would put it differently. They uh, were acting according to what they saw as the facts. Mm. And they had different priorities, that their facts loomed large and my facts uh, didn't loom large. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this was self-interest as they saw it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just emotions floating free from facts as they saw them. So... uh, they this red state paradox. I I tried it out. I, one guy who begins the book, Mike Chef. God, we were out fishing, and I thought, well, this is a good place for me to just put it out. What about this red state paradox? You know, mm-hmm. and he he said, well, we're embarrassed about it. Yeah, you know, we don't like being the second poorest state, and but that's why we want an economy. That's why you know, mm-hmm. and this other thing is more important than that paradox. Mm. So you liberals come in and you focus on this paradox and you think we're crazy. No, no, we know it's there, but I said it's trumped by this other thing that I came to call the deep story. The deep story. So, so, tell, so the deep story, tell us what a deep story is and then what the deep story of Louisiana is. Yeah, a deep story is a story that about some salient situation uh, that feels true. You take facts out of the deep story. You strip moral precepts out of the deep story. It's just what feels true to you. And it is, you get to feelings by uh, a story that is with what T.S. Eliot would call the the objective correlatives to feelings. What se- what has to seem true for you to feel angry, to feel grief, uh, to feel despair? And so I was looking for the objective correlatives to what felt true if you stripped away the feeling rules, as I call them in my in in, in my work. Um, and their deep story is that it can be told in almost a dreamlike way, like a metaphor, through a metaphor, that you're standing in line as in a pilgrimage facing up a hill. The top of the hill is the American dream, and your feet are, are facing it. Uh, and you feel you really deserve that dream. You have worked hard. You've played by the rules. But the line isn't moving. People hadn't had a raise in two decades, the ones I interviewed. So you're, you're waiting in line, and the prize is there. You're getting on in years. Now's the time for the reward. And then you see some line cutters, and you think, well, wait a minute, they're not, it's not fair. Through... And who are they? They are blacks and women who, through federally mandated affirmative action programs, are finally being given access to jobs and opportunities that had been reserved for whites and men. And then immigrants and uh, refugees and others. Uh, And then in another moment 
this right-wing deep story. Uh, the leader who should be impartially supervising this line seems to be waving to the line cutters. And who is that? That's Barack Obama. And then people would say, oh, he must be a line cutter too. How did he get such, how did his mother pay for a Harvard education? Must be something fishy. I heard that time and time again, questioning how he could have done this and envy in it. We, we misunderstand racial feeling. It's not just fear of, you know, the thug who will come to the door. No, no, this is envy. Oh, he's so well-spoken. He's so intelligent. He's gone to Harvard and Columbia. Wow. Uh, so anyway, uh, that alliance makes them feel cut out. They've waited in line. They're forgotten. Uh, this is not their land. And then add to that that the land they're on, in fact, is polluted. It is not their land. It's been polluted by industry. Public waters aren't public waters anymore. And, and that leads to a kind of an estrangement and a looking around for rescue. So that was the deep story. Um, I got to it by listening for a long time, making up that story, and then going back to my people and trying out. Does this, how does this sit with you? Yeah, people said, I live your metaphor. How did you read my mind? And, but some people would say, no, no, at the end, we move over to another line or, you know, secede from the country, basically. Or, um, no, you've left out that we line waiters are paying through our taxes for the line cutters, and that's not fair. So they added, they elaborated the story. Uh, but basically, um, it made sense to them. So it's not that they're irrational in one sense. It's that we have to understand how the world looks, the standpoint that um, people on the right are taking. And by the way, I think all of us, wherever we land on the political spectrum, have a deep story. So what's interesting about this is in your book, you go through the many factors at work uh, from history, the nature of the South's political culture where the dominant and the, dom the dominating and the dominated Right. Uh, related to slavery and the white working class not looking and comparing themselves to the top because they always believe they could rise to that level, but looking down and saying, well, we're better than the blacks. Or, uh, oh, my God, let that not happen to, to me. Us. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is kind of built into the political culture uh, of the South. And then the left comes along after the 60s uh, and emphasizes identity and it's important to politics. So the notion of the identity of a black, of a woman, of, uh, the, of, a, of a gay person is important. And that is thrust at these people and it helps 
push them toward the emphasis on a white identity. So there's a light, a, a white, uh, a, a white identity. Their identity as a white person. So, so a lot is going on. There's a lot of complexity here. But you, in talking to individuals, are able to conceptualize this deep story that, in a way, pulls it all together. Is that fair? Well, thank you. Uh, It's, you know, of course, the civil rights movement was focusing on rights, not so much identity, but rights. Uh, That came later, the the identity politics. The identity politics came later. Yeah, Yeah. right. Um, But... um, yeah, the focus was on rights, which were constitutional mm-hmm. and fundamental, but not um, uh, not implemented in the South. Uh, and from there, and of course, my husband and I were civil rights workers, actually, in Vicksburg, Mississippi, 1964, um, Freedom Summer. So... So that was about rights, and then, but from the point of view of of whites whose ancestors were uh, in the 1860s, uh, poor farmers. They were not slave owners. They, uh, but they fought. They were the cannon fodder, um, and in fact, as cash in uh, the mind of the South makes clear. Poor whites were the good land. They were shoved off of the good land. They were put back in the swamps and the hinterlands, and their labor wasn't needed because of uh, slave labor. So uh, they could grow corn, but even the forests uh, didn't provide, uh, you know, hunting for them because that became off limits. So anyway, the whites have historically been marginalized. They've been historically um, kind of grown up in a culture that you're just pointing out didn't have any tradition of a public square and of of public goods, of of a public commons, of great schools and museums. That wasn't part of the plantation tradition. And uh, that their only way out would be to identify up and distance themselves from the abject slave. So uh, that's the culture that they've inherited. And I think one has to um, acknowledge that and begin a whole series of conversations about that. So, so, uh, so Starting with the idea of Human rights. Yeah. The the so the deep story uh, is a conceptual construct that is more than a concept because when you run this by the people they 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 agree with it, but it it fits into a context uh, in in both in terms of history, in terms of institutions. You look at the press. You look at the the government. Uh, uh, in uh, in Louisiana, and and what is what is bizarre is this is the people you're interviewing are people who hunt, who love the outdoors. Yes. So they're they're almost Californian yeah. in their appreciation in their surroundings, and so they are watching the the 
the erosion of the natural beauty. Now, something comes up in the story when you talk to the general who commanded the, the saving of New Orleans, and he talks about the importance of jobs. So the, the, what, what the oil companies and the, the polluting industries offer are jobs. And these people see jobs, 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 as a way to transcend what is happening to them and, and give them, you know, honor and security and other things. Uh, and, and that really comes out in your book. It's, it's very interesting. Yes, uh, and you're speaking of General Russell Honoré, yeah. who was absolutely extraordinary figure and with uh, brilliant mediation skills. Mm-hmm. I followed him around, just listened to how he talked. Um, uh, and what he said um, is that there's just enough to the rhetoric of jobs, jobs, jobs to make them swallow a psychological program. And I looked at the statistics in uh, Louisiana, actually only 15% of jobs have anything to do with oil. These are highly automated plants, and there are very few permanent jobs uh, in those plants. And even then, uh, they import Filipina pipe fitters, for example, who are cheaper. So most, most jobs are outside of oil. And in fact, what could be booming industries, tourism, it's a beautiful state, could be an extraordinary tourism industry. But uh, oil's kind of wrecked that by polluting the place. Uh, and... Um, you know, the restaurants and fishing, the, this, uh, this is hurt by oil, too. So we've gone in Louisiana from plantation system, you know, used to be cotton, now it's oil. And there's a culture, a political culture that's uh, oriented to a dominant uh, economic interest. And the people I came to know in Louisiana were used to a state that did the bidding of industry. It's what we call a captured state. And so I came to understand why they hated the government, because they thought, oh, the federal government is just a bigger, badder version of a state government, and our state government Mm -hmm. isn't helping us. And they got that idea by looking at Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, which gave out permits to pollute uh, very easily and um, didn't protect the people. So, in a way, industry outsourced the moral dirty work to the state. So people thought, I'm paying the salary of people that aren't protecting me. Why am I paying for that? State isn't working. But, oh, the industry is talking jobs, jobs, jobs. And by the way, uh, it's giving money to the Audubon Society, to uh, Louisiana State University football uniforms. And that's money that actually is public money because 
under Governor Jindal, $1.5 billion went as, quote, incentive money to the petro industry. Um, and with that money, they could give out gifts. So you can see, actually, this is the sociology of emotions, that you can see industry has been brilliant at getting itself loved, you know, branding, and getting the state hated. And so it, it, it wasn't a mystery, it wasn't irrational from their point of view uh, to, to take a jaundiced view of the state. Uh, you, let, let's go back to the timeline of this book because you were making these discoveries, forming this conceptual way of looking at it before Trump was a candidate, most of this work was done. You published in 2016, I guess then he announces his candidacy. Uh, you talk a little about Trump and going to a Trump rally and you say Trump is an emotions candidate. So having laid out for us the landscape of emotions in the, in the deep, hard right, uh, you see a resonance there. Oh, I do. I think we can talk about uh, people who have, who pursue an emotional logic. In other words, what they do to evoke emotion is not illogical. It can serve an important purpose. It can be logical. And I think that's the way to understand um, our president. Um, for example, um, my interpretation of a recent event um, would be this. Uh, the uh, the leader of North Korea has has uh, has said he's got this, you know, nuclear bomb and could bomb us. And uh, Trump has taunted him, really escalating this rhetoric. And meanwhile, uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, has said, "Well, we're beginning talks," and Trump says, "No." He's wasting his breath, no talks, and you think the man's irrational. This makes no sense. This is his secretary of state. I mean, either he's not in any communication with them, or maybe there are two channels of communication. People are confused. Seems irrational. Well, yes, on the one hand, this is very dangerous, um, but on the other hand, is he trying to just keep us all anxious, just to keep everybody uh, in doubt as to what's going to happen, oriented toward him as the author of our future, and kind of hyping up? Is that uh, what he intends and what purpose does that fulfill? I think that's the way we need to think. Uh, and that any politician, of course, is aware of heightened symbols and kind of emotional magnetism and plays to those symbols. And certainly we have a man who's, who's doing this uh, expertly. Um, but that's 
I think the way we need to think, we need to look for emotional logics uh, and, and stop trying to look for patterns and, of a and, more rational sort. And, and what's interesting is if your, your, your book gives us the landscape, the topography of the far right uh, and the right's emotional uh, uh, landscape, I guess we would call it. And what once you know that, then you're able, one is able, the reader is able to look at Trump differently, not necessarily like him. Right. But so then the, the whole business of dismantling the Obama state, right. uh, the whole business of making cultural war to right. arouse emotions right. against the NFL begins to to represent a political logic that comes from an understanding of the emotional system. Exactly, exactly. On some of the Facebooks after the NFL uh, event, um, I saw pictures of a... Uh, this is on the Facebook pages of some of the people that uh, I write about. Uh, a picture on one hand of a group of uh, white soldiers, and underneath it, um, you know, serving our country, $30,000 a year, and then NFL. None of them have served our country, and, you know, multimillionaires, you know, $40 million a year, and so on. Envy. It's, um, uh, gosh, you know, line cutter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's what it goes to. So, so if we call if we call the people you studied rednecks and and boobs or, or whatever, then we deny ourselves an understanding of their emotional system, and understanding their emotional system is key to understand what Trump is up to, basically, yes. and who, who yes. he's appealing to. That's right. That's right. And understanding where the conversation is. It's not that there's the, where I was in, in uh, southwest uh, Louisiana. It wasn't this, that, or the other a Tea Party Trump lover. Everybody, the conversation, the public conversation uh, was very much uh, agreed upon. It's a um, and it made me feel that on the question of race, the, the the kinds of issues that came up routinely in the 1960s and the wet, on the coasts kind of was put on stop um, in the South. I'll give you an example. Uh, one man I was talking with um, said, "Well, you know, I'm I'm a reformed bigot." I said, well, what's a bigot? Well, bigot is someone who hates blacks. I never hated blacks. Um, or used the N-word, but now I did use to use the N-word. They did, I did too. But now it offends me. If someone uses that word on my Facebook, I unfriend them. So, reform bigot. And I asked him, uh, so he had a very narrow definition of what a bigot was, what, uh, or what racism. It didn't have any notion of a system, something larger. Um, 
Now, I asked him, what was it like when your uh, high school was integrated, Donaldsonville High? This is on what we now call Cancer Alley in the lower loops of the Mississippi. And he said, well, in my freshman year, there were two blacks in my class, and by the senior year, half the class were blacks. And we were out fishing. And I, I asked him, so did you make any new friends? And there was a long pause. And he said, you're making me think. And I thought, I'm making you think? It's this something you haven't thought before? That these could be new friends? And mm. um, uh, I felt like the conversation that was going on in the coast was really on pause and had not there are things that just haven't been considered and discussed in in a respectful, uh, mind-changing way, only in a attack, defend, confrontational way. And um, there's a job to be done. Uh, Speaking as a teacher, <laughs> uh, we're coming to the end of our program, and there's just so much to cover. So everybody has to really go out and read the book, you know. <laughs> because we can't cover everything, but, but one, one really final question, which is this. In a way, you, you, you were the liberal community's unappointed uh, secret envoy to the heart of Louisiana. I, uh, what comes to mind is uh, President Roosevelt sending Harry Hopkins uh, <laughs> to, to Russia. So I guess the question is, what is the, beyond the book, what is the message in a, in a nutshell about how the liberal community should turn your insights into action that might bring the country together? Wonderful question. Um, and incidentally, there were liberals, in, of course, in, in Louisiana doing wonderful work. Uh, they were in a minority, but they were certainly present. Uh, uh, there is something called a bridge movement. Uh, and if you were to Google the Bridge Alliance, you would find it's an umbrella group uh, that describing some 70, it's now 80 different grassroots organizations with names like High from the Other Side or Living Room Conversations, uh, uh, groups uh, that are trying to bridge the divide. Not that people are going to morph into each other, and we're not talking uh, about that, but in search of particular issues on which there can be common ground. And right here at Berkeley, there's Berkeley Bridge. Uh, I'm in touch with some fantastic students that are doing this. Uh, we need to get debates going. The whole Berkeley culture needs to be enriched so that they're, so that talking across this divide isn't scary, isn't repugnant, isn't um, attack-defend, but it's really exploring ideas. Um, and I think this can be done in a lot of ways, theater, satire, lots of different ways. We, 
I think that culture on the UC campus has become atrophied, and I think we need to beef it up and enrich it. And the bridge movement is really all about that. Um, I found a lot of crossover on such issues as uh, reducing prison populations, getting money out of politics, uh, um, in fact, reducing pollution, uh, 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 renewable energy. There's something called the green tea movement, you know, where tea party people are embracing solar and so on. Um, protecting children. Uh, the, there's, there's actually quite a lot we could agree on, and including being proud of America, you know, quite basically. We may mean different things about being uh, American and patriotism, but we need to learn to stretch our symbols, not to step over and deride them, but to learn how to stretch them, how to apply um, a value to circumstances that the person may not have thought about. You say you're a patriot, great. So does that mean sacrificing willingness to sacrifice for your country? That's what most people I talked to felt about the flag and the Constitution. Or does it also mean defending the free press? So, symbol stretches. I have one final question, and for I'm looking for a brief answer. Is there something that Trump is doing as president that would alienate the people that you observed? They're sticking with him. They're loyal. They're not uh, excited about him anymore, uh, but they don't see anything else for them. I started with a red state paradox, but I end with a blue state paradox. How could it be that the Democratic Party, the party of the working man and woman, isn't appealing to these working men and women. That's the work that needs to be done. Well, on that note, uh, Arlie, I, I can't uh, recommend your book enough uh, for people on the left side of the spectrum to become informed about uh, the right side. So. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on our program, and thank you very much for writing this book. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.